Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of small electric vehicles. We cover the best companies building these amazing new vehicles, as well as topics relevant to how they impact people, cities, and our planet. My name is Oliver Bruce, an investor in mobility and climate tech, and my co-host is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com and Micromobility Industries. Hey team, Oliver here. This week I am on the move. I'm currently in Iceland on my way to Micromobility Europe, but I wanted to share this episode that I recorded with Michael Keating when I was passing through San Francisco on the launch day of his new company, Tempo. For those of you who are in the know, Michael is an OG of the micromobility space, having founded the moped sharing company Scoot way back in 2012. He was one of the first in the sharing genre, and he ended up selling it to Bird. Tempo is his latest venture, and one I'm very excited about, having followed along with the journey for quite a while at this point. I'm honoured that he would share this with me on his busy launch day, as he was fielding calls from lots of other journalists, and I really enjoyed this conversation, not only about the history of shared micromobility, but also the current state of things and his efforts to get millions of micromobility devices out into the world. I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. And if you are listening to this and think, oh, I'd like to meet Michael and or you'd like to meet me and Horace, please get your tickets to join us at Micromobility Europe, June 8th and 9th in Amsterdam. Horace will be there along with myself and the rest of the team and over a thousand thinkers and builders in the space of micromobility. It will be an absolute blast. And with that, here is Michael. Let's go. And welcome back to Micromobility. I have with me today in person, Michael Keating, how are you today, Michael? I'm great. It's great to see you in person in San Francisco, Oliver. Yeah, yeah. I'm uh, passing through, flying visit on my way to Micromobility in Amsterdam. But I have wanted to have this conversation with you for a very long time. We've been friends, but also colleagues and, and various different things. And, and I just thought, you're launching this new thing. I want to come do it. I want to do it justice and I want to be able to have this conversation. I want to talk about the new thing. I do, but I also want to talk about you and your journey because I think you're one of the kind of the OGs of the micromobility space. You've been around for a really long time and you've been thinking about these issues. What I think our thesis and what we've talked about on the on the podcast way longer than we've been thinking about it. So um, it's a yeah, it's an honor to be sitting here with you to be able to have this conversation. That's that's a lot, but I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, uh, cool. Well, look, maybe what we'll do is we'll start with your new company, Tempo, and then I want to go back into the history of uh, and kind of have a wider, more ranging, wide ranging discussion about micro and how you got into it and what you've seen through that through that journey. Um, but yeah, take me through what Tempo is and what you're doing. So I'm Michael Keating. I'm the founder of Tempo, and Tempo is an electric mobility subscription platform. What we mean by that is we're helping electric mobility retail brands offer their e-bikes and e-scooters on a subscription basis. So we're not inventing our own e-scooter e-bike. We're not marketing our own subscription service. We're going to the folks that we think already have great brands, already have great vehicles, and we're helping them offer subscriptions to their riders because we believe that subscriptions will grow their market share yeah. and it'll we can provide great services alongside their vehicles that'll make it a better experience for their customers. Right. So it's a, in some ways like a fintech play on the existing hardware businesses that oftentimes exist. Yeah, it, some people would call this an embedded subscription business. You yeah. look at um, the way you'd see like an Affirm or a Klarna or, or like an Extend, some of these things you'd find in the checkout flow that you can kind of add on to a purchase, that's where you're going to find Tempo. So you'll go to the website of some awesome e-scooter or e-bike brand. You'll be thinking, hey, I'd love to own this. And you know, maybe you'll find it expensive or maybe you'll be worried about it getting stolen or you're not sure where it could get repaired. And right below that buy button, you'll see subscribe with Tempo for a lot less than what you would pay to buy it. Mm. And if you subscribe with us, we're going to assemble it. We're going to deliver it to you. We're going to be there when it needs to be repaired. We're going to be there if you want to return it. Uh, yeah. We're going to be there if you want to buy it from us. And we just give you a ton of flexibility. And what we think is from the brand's point of view there are a bunch of folks now that are looking at their wonderful e-bikes and scooters and would love to own them, but aren't buying them. And yep. we think some of those folks will become subscribers. Yeah. What's the insight that you had that got you to this place of going like, okay, subscription? Because look, I'm broadly on board. And you look at companies in the market, like Unagi has now gone 100% on subscription. Uh, and I know that the, the era of micromobility I get most excited about at the moment is the how do we democratize access and 
getting so I'm, I'm really excited about what electric is doing uh, and that's sort of like the lower end e-bikes but that are still good quality or on the other side the folks who are doing like like and carry or we up in norway who are doing e-bikes available for families who want to get them but you know as you say subscription like subscription what was the part that yeah what was the insight for you about going like okay out of all of the different elements of the micro mobility industry this is the part that i'm like very excited to want to go build another company in we can talk about what I know about electric vehicle sharing in just a second. But yeah. I think like a lot of us in the micromobility community, we we had our first experiences of this mode from the sharing side. Yeah. And I looked around and I said, okay, what's really happening in the market broadly? And yeah. what I saw was just tremendous retail adoption. And I think a lot of that was driven by the folks, fact that folks had a chance to try the shared services, to try a shared scooter, try a shared bike and realize that they wanted to own them. And also the the, like you mentioned, electric and others, these vehicles are getting really good and really affordable. And also the high-end ones are really elegant and, and just are really wonderful to ride. And so I said, I realized that you know most of the vehicles in the world are owned, not shared. Most of the rides in the world are happening on owned vehicles, not shared vehicles. Mm-hmm. And that that's where the real impact is going to come from. That, that sharing can be a wonderful introduction for folks. And it can be a wonderful thing when you just like need a quick ride somewhere. Yeah. But what we really want is for everyone to have their own one of these vehicles. Yeah. And then I asked myself, well, what's missing? And it, it, there's already brands making Grady Biggs and scooters, you know, low end ones, high end ones in between. People are aware of those brands. The There's already people working on the batteries, working on the manufacturing. What seemed to be missing for me was making these things really affordable to folks. And where affordability isn't just about the price, mm. it's also about the flexibility to either return it or buy it. Like one of the great things about sharing was that you could just pay five bucks and ride it and you totally. don't have to buy it out. Yeah. Also, theft is really expensive. Yeah. Like if you're a person for whom like a thousand dollar scooter or e-bike is a big purchase and then it gets stolen from you, that's like the most expensive thing about it. Yeah. So you need to think about theft as well and also repairs. Like if it's not working, it's really expensive. Like yeah. you've just, you own this thing that doesn't go. And and so I what I wanted to focus on were those services and also some of the technologies that we we perfected in sharing, bring those to retail and solve a bunch of the problems that I felt that folks that even folks who are making a great e-bike or e-scooter, even folks who had a great brand hadn't yet solved, but that what we learned in sharing could help them solve. Beautiful. Well, I feel like this is an appropriate launch point to going back to how on earth you got into the industry at all and what you've been doing. So I know a few things about scooter sharing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'll I'll tell you how I learned them. I was um, personally, just my my background, I'm an environmentalist, I'm an entrepreneur, and Mm. I've always, I've lived my whole life in cities. Mm. And so I had this kind of passion for getting around cities, but but wanting to do it in a way that was sustainable. But, but also I'm really impatient. And I was frustrated that if I was in a hurry in whatever city I was living in, which is I usually am, I was almost inevitably getting in some kind of car to get where I needed to go, yeah. like a taxi or driving my own car or something like that. And that just felt wrong, environmentally wrong, street safety-wise, traffic, parking, all the problems that comes with that, come with that. And so I went looking for something that could get me around the city quickly, but also be ecologically responsible, like climate-wise, local air pollution, all those kinds of factors. And so I I started looking for electric motorbikes back in 2011, and there really weren't any in the Mm. US at the time. And also, there really weren't any electric cars. There was like super, super expensive Tesla and stuff like that. I found out that in China, folks had been riding these electric moped-like e-bikes for years that that cost like a few hundred bucks, lead-acid batteries, they often weren't that attractive. They weren't that durable, but millions of people were riding them to work every day. And when I knew that those were available, so when I found out, when I found out that these electric motorbikes were available for hundreds of dollars, which is like half the cost of a mechanical bike share bike and bike share was just coming to the U S at that time. I thought, wow, this is amazing. You could do something kind of like bike share, but with electric bike moped things. And And I started this company called Scoot. And this was 2011. We launched in 2012 in San Francisco. And the way we did it is we put a piece of IoT into these electric motorbikes and we made an app that allowed you to find them in the city, turn them on with your phone, jump on it. And, and initially it was garage to garage. And then we found, we got a street parking permit and people could go free floating and we developed swappable batteries. And, yeah. and we, But bottom line is we I basically started the first scooter sharing app, but it, yeah. was, it was like electric 
mopeds. And, and that was, was in this? 2012. And that was, so Zipcar started, what, 2006, 2007? Because they were doing pre-mobile, right? No, it was actually earlier. Zipcar was like 99, 2000. No or, or 2001, maybe. But um, wow. uh, so that was, and yeah, that was the first. And we, we actually described ourselves back in 2012 as Zipcar for scooters because yeah. Zipcar was the reference. And like, bike share like the paris bike share was the reference back then and it was like before uber had like uber x and yeah. there's before tesla had the model s it was very 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 early that, that we started working on this yeah and the i i remember um seeing you launch because i was watching the like lightweight electric vehicle space already at that point. i was so it was so weird how uh all of these uh, you know 12 years later 13 years later we're, 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 we're having these conversations but um i had seen it and it because horace and i had been talking about the lightweight electric vehicles even back then and we'd seen the thing happen in china the, the crazy thing about china by the way uh just for the listeners who may not be aware is the reason china ended up in this situation is because they were so worried about air pollution and so in 2004 or 2005 a whole bunch of the biggest cities in china had banned uh two-stroke electric mopeds um and then actually or maybe just even gas-powered mopeds and so they ended up with these e-bikes that were really janky solutions but yeah that's how you ended up with these mopeds that were super cheap so talk me through the journey of scoots you started out like my understanding is you had to build your own iot you you're like you didn't have battery swapping because there was there was no battery swapping like you had to charge them yourself i mean it really was you were so preposterously early (laughs) we were preposterously early and we were preposterously full stack so yeah we did make our own iot we did we wrote our own gateway in erlang like we we had our we you know, obviously created all our own apps for the riders and the mm. mechanics. We you know, created our own brand. The only thing we didn't do was make the vehicles. Right. Uh, we customized them pretty heavily. We adapted them to what we thought the U.S. market needed. But we, we, we ran our own mechanic fleets, our own customer service. We obviously city relations, you know, customer. All it, it was a it was a full stack mm. business, and it was very early and it was very capital intensive. And you know, the the motorbike in the U.S. market was, um, you know, it's kind of a recreational product for most Americans. And it, you know, there's perceptions around safety that here that aren't as widespread in Europe and Asia and other places. But we persevere with this idea that what we were trying to do is disrupt car trips in cities, which is another mm-hmm. reason why I love your podcast. And I love mm-hmm. Horace and he and I both studied with Clay Christensen years and years ago. And so we have this kind of shared thinking about, hey, like cars are overbuilt. Like these things are just too big for the city. How do you disrupt them? And, and yeah. Scoot was an effort, like a textbook effort to disrupt the automobile we in cities specifically. So we built out this fleet in SF. We went through several different generations of scooters and manufacturers. We had a, a dalliance with the Twizy of yep. through a partnership with Renault and Nissan. And sorry, when you say scooter, you're talking mopeds, right? We're talking mopeds. Yeah. Yep. So we called the business Scoot because we had what, I mean, you know, as folks know in English, a scooter can mean like a Vespa-like scooter. It can mean a stand-on scooter. We called these scooters and that was our main vehicle for years. We eventually, uh, we did some mini cars. We started to get into electric bicycles and then the stand-on scooters happened with, um, and that, I mean, the brilliance of the stand-on scooters were they had none of the regulations that mopeds had. They Mm -hmm. had none of the sort of fear factor. They could kind of be parked anywhere and they could be, at least at the beginning, it looked like they could be maintained by people that didn't have a lot of professional experience maintaining something like a scooter that could be recharged and even like light maintenance could be done. At least it looked like at the time by folks that could just download an app like they're an Uber driver. And that was both brilliant, also dangerous. And it changed the whole industry when, when bird and Lime came along with these and also, I mean, before them, Ofo and Mobike that, mm-hmm. that had come and then kind of gone. And then the stand-on scooters became kind of the defining feature of the industry. And so we sold Scoot to Bird in 2019. Yeah. yeah. And we had expanded to Barcelona. We'd expanded to Santiago. But we weren't making money. Mm. Like, our unit economics were still not positive, And Birds certainly weren't either. But they were growing so fast. Yeah. And they needed to be in SF. They needed to be in Barcelona. They needed to be in Santiago. Um, they needed some of our experience across multiple modes because they wanted to branch out from the stand-on scooters. And so we were in a tough spot. We were not growing as fast as they were, mm. but our unit economics weren't great. Mm. And so we had to find a buyer, frankly. Yeah. And um, and Bird was the company that needed us the most. Right. And so that's where we landed. Yeah, yeah. It's super interesting because there was a couple of, I, I remember having the conversation with um, Ryan Jepetsky, founder of Jump, about the word is probably not uh, like he was he was deeply frustrated with the the reception and the fundraising ability of Lyman Bird when he had been like I have been battling away since 2013 to try and build these <laughs> freaking 
free floating bike shares. And then all of a sudden these guys come along with this scooter thing and they've raised like a billion dollars each. And like, we have scrapped, like just, just gone through the entire thing, nearly lost the company a couple of times. I mean, what was that experience like? Our experience was very similar. Ryan and I used to have these pretty intense conversations and a lot of respect to Ryan because he, before I even started Scoot, I, I had a conversation with him about his idea for what was then social bicycles, which mm. was, hey, it's bike sharing, but let's put the lock on the bike. Let's not put in these big racks. Yep. Let's put the lock on the bike, and then the bike can be locked anywhere. It was brilliant. Mm. And that was actually an inspiration for what Scoot eventually became. But you know, before he was he, he turned it into Jump and sold it to Uber, he, I think both of us had these really challenging fundraising experiences. And we're very proud of the capital that we raised at Scoot from, from some wonderful investors, but it was an uphill battle the whole mm. way. Yeah. And do you think, I mean, one of the things that, you know, I reflect on in the, in the time that we've got to know each other has been that you are like exceptionally good at being early to things and like seeing, <laughs> I say that with deep respect and also sometimes I'm like, oh, you're like so early. Like I'm, I'm, I like consider myself early on the stuff and he, and, and you're like, you can see stuff even further ahead than I can. So for that's a blessing and a curse yeah yeah i can imagine it's a blessing and a curse um what do you what were your kind of reflections and learnings on on scoot after having done it and and gone like okay cool you know obviously you went and did bird and you worked for bird for a little while but you 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 know like looking back on it now what do you think you did well what do you think you didn't do well what what were the lessons there so after we sold to bird there was a kind of a transition period of trying to integrate the companies. And then I took over their government relations function briefly before COVID. And it was, it was being inside Bird, very, very, very different company. And you know, different in ways that were really amazing and impressive and different in ways that I found kind of personally challenging. But there, when, when I left, it was... It was the first question for me was, do I keep doing this? Like, like micro is hard. Like electric mobility is hard. E-bikes are hard. Scooters are hard. Urban mobility, public space, all this stuff makes these businesses really, really difficult. But as you said, we were crazy early. And, you know, now in 2023, it's not early anymore. Mm-hmm. This business is broadly sharing aside. Like you look at retail, you look at fleets, you look at batteries, you look at it's, it's going through the roof. It's an amazing, amazing time. So the question was just what you asked is what did I, what lessons could I take away? I think the first was, you know, at Scoot, it was, we probably should have paid closer attention to the scalability of the business. And then if you, and it was actually going to Bird after, Bird was all about scalability. That was mm-hmm. like the whole point is like growing super, super fast. Yeah. And Scoot was frankly all about safety and all about competing with cars. And yeah. that focus meant that we spent probably too long focused on the motorbike as a as a car competitor some of our we had you know hundreds of something thousand customers who loved the motorbike but mm. it didn't have the broad applicability that like an e-bike or a stand-on scooter had yeah. so thinking in this new business tempo how can we do something that really could reach everybody yeah and then if you have a product that could reach everybody what's a business model that really can scale. And Scoot's mm-hmm. business model was very in-house. It was very full stack. Um, whereas Bird's business model was very sort of outsourced, very, um, you know, very sort of scalable. So I think there's some things that we learned from Scoot that I want to keep. And there's some things that I learned at Bird that I want to keep. And, and there's stuff that, that I learned at both companies that I'm going to leave behind. Mm. Ryan Chapitsky, I saw on Twitter. So there's a wonderful guy you should all follow called Prabhan Joel James Jones. James Jones. Um, who's he's on Twitter. Um, I will track him down and put him in the, in the show notes, but he's phenomenal. He tracks all of the financials of all of the public, uh, shared companies. And I think so. One of the, one of the others, like again, public data on, on a sharing company came out again. And it was again that the company unfortunately had not made any money. And Ryan Jepetsky said, man, when is this industry ever going to make money? <laughs> and I'm, and I, you know, I've had that conversation with Sanjay Dastor, who was at Skip. I've had that conversation with Laura Fox, at, at, who's at City Bike. And it's a challenge. Like I, I do, I'm curious for you as to whether or not you think that shared micromobility model will ever make money or, and or what it will take, because it's like, what do we need to learn? What does it require cities to subsidize it? Do we, can we justify the higher costs or can we justify higher prices in that in that industry to justify or to, to be able to make money and, and be able to operate? Or like, where are we going to end up with that matched capital with operations that they actually make money? That is, an, that's probably worth a whole podcast or two in and of itself. Yeah. I, I'll just throw like a few things out there, and then and then we can div, dive in if we have time. But I think first of all, when you talk about shared micro, you've 
you've got to look at the whole world now. You know, mm. it's not just San Francisco. It's not just U.S. It's not just U.S. and Europe. There's there's some really interesting. I mean, China has always been a huge business for this, and it it's a little bit hard to tell from the outside the the data. Um, that's available to an American about a Chinese micro mobility business is um, it's a little hard to interpret, but you know, Hello in in China is a huge uh, a huge business, and mm. then there's some operations in um, there's a group out of Swing out of Korea. Yep. You know, I, I hear they're doing well, yes. but we've also heard that a lot of shared micro companies from different parts of the world are doing well. So, yep. I, but I guess I would say that different geographic and regulatory environments can yield, and also weather and stuff can yield very different results. I think that there was this equation, particularly with Bird, between Bird and Uber, and this like this generalizability of micro. There was that mm. it was as generalizable as car services, yeah. and it's really not. Yeah. Like it's much more locally dependent. It's much more weather dependent. It's much more like locally, even within like neighborhoods or blocks of a city. Like if you talk to really good operators, they'll tell you like if you leave the scooter on one side of the street versus the other, you get completely different utilization. Really, and wow. that kind of. That what that means, I think, is that there are ways to make a profit in micro, but you have to be in shared micro mobility scooters, bikes, mopeds. But you have to be in the right place and at the right time, and you have to have the discipline or the permission of the city government or both to just focus on those parts of the city where you can make a profit. And yep. that doesn't always exist everywhere. Yep. You know, if you want to serve parts of a city like residential neighborhoods where there's not a lot going on during the day, if you if you want to be really widespread, if you want to serve at times of the year when there's less utilization because of the weather or something like that, then you may actually need subsidies or mm. you may need some sort of, whether it's public subsidies or some other subsidy to make it work really widely because the fundamentally it's cheaper to provide a ride on like a shared scooter or bike than it is a lot of forms of public transit yes. yeah. but a lot of forms of public transit are very very heavily subsidized for very very good reasons so there's i think there's a future in shared micro mobility that is kind of working itself out right now in different parts of the world and I think on the one hand, like the birds and limes and you know ofos and mobikes, the the blitz scaled micro mobility mm. operators should get take a lot of credit for introducing this to the world very 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 fast. Yeah. But they also did it in, in a way that they ruined the reputation of the mode with a lot of both city officials as well as other kind of like non participant stakeholders and and living that down is something that the industry, I think, is on the shared side is still trying to do. So it's a, it's a tension. Both stories are true. Those companies did an amazing thing by introducing hundreds of millions of people, literally, yeah. to electric mobility. But at the same time, they conducted themselves in a way that that really damaged their reputation with folks that are really, really, really important to their future growth. Yeah, totally. I think there's a lot of city officials who still think that these companies make a lot of money. And they're like, they just want to milk them for as much as they're worth rather than looking at it as like, no, we need to support them as we do like a PT operator or whatever. And that's a, but look, all of which is, this is all, I I think, by the by, I want to get on to Tempo. I want to talk a bit about, about what you've built and why you're building it. So talk me through that journey. Like you obviously left Bird. You were like, I want to go and, you know, flay myself in the world of micromobility again. (laughs) Um. Yeah, what was the what was the insight? Um, we we kind of talked a bit about subscriptions as being kind of like you know it's an interesting part of the business model in micro. I think that's a kind of key thing. But if we, you know, ten thousand feet view, what what was the what was the interesting stuff? I kept hearing about businesses that were doing well at this on a unit economics basis, which is something that shared micro mobility always struggled with. Yeah, and we had had a brief experience with it at Scoot where we had let a handful of our kind of extra mopeds out to like really frequent riders who just like really wanted one on a monthly basis. And we said, sure, okay, fine, let's just try it. Mm. And the thing was we couldn't charge someone hundreds of dollars a month for a shared electric moped the way that that was the kind of revenue that we were earning on our shared bikes. We had to charge a lot less, but at the same time, if we just let one person use it, it never needed any maintenance. Mm. So we had no cost associated with it. Mm. And that was really cool, but it didn't have the sort of scalability and potential that sharing seemed to have, you know, circa 2015 when we tried this. So, but you see other businesses that are getting great traction. Swap feeds in Europe is, mm-hmm. you know, has you know, hundreds of thousands of users. You have uh, other businesses that are kind of in the tens of thousands and you kind of, you can see that these are expensive assets, yep. but they're really, really useful. And if you can make it possible for folks to pay for them over time. If you can take some of the maintenance and theft risk out, you get a great response from customers. The question though, in my mind was, how do you make that a a defensible, scalable 
venture backable business. And that's what took me the longest to figure out. I mm-hmm. think it's clear there's demand for subscriptions and things like it in mm-hmm. micromobility. That's just, that's just demonstrated. I think it's also clear that if you do it right, you can have positive unit economics, which yep. eluded the sharing businesses. The question is, can you build a scalable and defensible business? And that's the trick that I think we've cracked at Tempo. Yes. Cool. So talk me through the like, how does the business side of it work? So you're partnering with the and then the the vehicle manufacturers themselves. Correct. That's the key. That's probably the biggest key to this is that we're not making our own subscription specific vehicle or piece of hardware. We're not even trying to build a subscription brand where people have heard of Tempo and then they come to Tempo looking for a subscription vehicle and then we sort of direct them to one thing or the yeah. other. What we think is happening is that there are great e-bike and e-scooter brands out there building their brands and communicating with people and bringing people to their website, getting them excited about you know one version of an e-scooter or an e-bike or another. And there, you know, there's cargo bikes for families and there's e-scooters for commuters and there's you know, high performance. You know, there's, there's a whole range of companies that know their customer. They're building a brand around that customer. They're building great vehicles for that customer. And po- folks are coming to their website looking for this product. And if we could help those brands to to capture more of that interest that they've generated by converting some folks who might've otherwise left into a subscriber, yep. then we could potentially bring a lot more people into micromobility, which is what my life is all about. Yeah, totally. So one, we both have shared experience of having talked to Zach Weinegar, uh, who runs a company called Fragile. Mm-hmm. Zach, uh, I came across Zach because he, he ran the subscription program at Unagi and then he's gone off and started a hardware subscription company which hasn't really got any focus on micro as far as I understand. Not a focus, but I, I just say that they are a partner of ours. Yeah. And so, so they, they partner with companies that, that are doing hardware subscriptions. So they're not, they're not focused on micro. We are. Yeah. And so we, we collaborate with them because we think that they're experts on hardware subscriptions. Yeah. But the big, and, and the thing that, you know, uh, his, his point, and, and this is uh, on their website is that, you can increase substantially increase the conversion if you go from like, hey, you can buy our scooter for I don't know, six hundred dollars or a thousand dollars or two thousand dollars or three thousand dollars. To y- y- there's a really high level of click through if all of a sudden you can go to subscription. So can you talk me through what for a scooter manufacturer they can expect in theory if they were to shift to subscription? So some of the data that's out there, I, I don't think I think we know what Inaga said publicly is that they have all but like, they moved almost all of their business into subscription, which I, I think is a great testament to the value of subscription to them. If you look at analogous businesses like a firm or Klarna, the, like the, mm-hmm. the, the point of sale lenders, their pitch is pretty similar. So they'll come to you as an e-bike company and say, hey, we can increase your sales by 20% if mm-hmm. you'll include our financing option in your checkout flow. And that that means that when you, the buyer, you look at that $2,000 e-bike and you say, wow, I'd love to have that, but I don't, I don't have that money right now. I don't want to pay for it all at once a firm or Klarna will lend you $2,000 to buy the mm-hmm. e-bike and then you pay back a firm and Klarna. So you're taking out a loan. Mm. Our business is a little bit different in that when you decide you want to subscribe with Tempo, we buy the bike mm-hmm. and we lend it to you. Mm-hmm. And because we're willing to have a relationship with you in which you could potentially return this thing to us. It's a subscription, right? Mm-hmm. You're not buying it necessarily. You could, we could sell it to you, but we, but you have the option to bring it back. That is, lowers the barrier even further in yeah. terms of like, you're not even committing to pay this thing all off over time the way you yeah. would with a firm or Klarna. Plus we'll throw in theft protection too, which yeah, is one, right. maybe one other reason why you might not buy. So we expect, and we're, we're out to prove this right now, that we can increase sales for electric bike and scooter brands by more than what the firms and Klarna's of the world do. And they generally promise something in like the 10 to 20% range. So we'd like right. to beat that. Yep. And and then for you, I mean, you're obviously taking on a fair amount of risk in purchasing this bike and then going and renting it out. Have you, I mean, you've just launched, right. so you're going live with the IKEA to uh, the IKT. Yeah, IKT live today, actually. Today's our launch and, and we are taking subscription orders for the IKT in the San Francisco Bay Area right now. Yep. Um, and the IKT, uh, for folks who, who may not uh, know what that is, so Christian, uh, the founder of Comodule, Estonian, totally crazy dude has been around in the industry for a very long time. The co-module are one of the largest IoT module providers for all the shared micromobility providers. And 
I'm going to have him on the podcast. He will be on soon. But his his kind of pitch is like, hey, I was just trying to find a good quality e-scooter and I couldn't find one. So I decided to build my own because I'm crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and it is a really nice scooter. I've just, uh, we, I just tried it out before we, uh, we, we, we came in here. Solves a lot of the problems that I think a lot of things have. You walk up to the scooter, it unlocks. Um, just on your phone, you don't have to do anything. There's no buttons on it. You ride it, it has an accelerator and it has a brake and it, it just works. And then you walk away and it locks and it's IoT tracked. And so there's a lot of things that like, you know, I have a boosted rev. That's my sort of daily rider at the moment, uh, along with an, a couple of e-bikes. But like the the thing that I found about it is like, it's a pain in the butt to lock. I don't ever feel safe leaving it anywhere because worried that people are going to come and nick it. And so... I can see myself going, oh, yeah, like I could see an IQT being a, a thing. Why Why did you choose to launch with that one out of curiosity versus like, you know, any other brand? So this is where we come back to the idea that retail, this incredibly fast-growing, large retail market can benefit from what we learned from mm. sharing. So Christian, as you mentioned, comes from Comodule, which is this big IoT uh, module provider to sharing businesses, but also to retail mm. e-bike companies. And by having the IoT and the GPS and the constant connectivity in the IKT, it makes it one of the only retail micro-mobility vehicles that has essentially the same tech in it as a sharing vehicle. Yeah. So it, like you said, it has the smart unlocking and stuff, but it's also constantly tracked. If you if it's turned off and someone tries to mess with it, it, it the motor resists it, it beeps, it sends a notification to your phone, it can be remotely disabled. So a lot of what we used to have to do all the time in sharing, which was track these things down who, that had gone astray either because they were stolen or they're parked somewhere they shouldn't be. We can also do that with now with someone's retail scooter, which is a, or retail e-bike, which is a, when you talk about the risk that Tempo is taking on and, and we are taking on some meaningful risk around these assets. And, and that's, that's the role that we want to play because mm-hmm. we think we're good at it. Mm-hmm. And when we have the IOT, the way we did with the sharing fleets that we used to manage, we think we can do a lot to prevent theft, to recover stolen vehicles. We can also do a lot of good on maintenance. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, can give the rider just a better experience and also data to the brands too. They're saying like, Hey, like this is how your vehicle is actually being used. Yeah. Like it's not just like, Hey, you sold it and you hope people ride it. Well, that was it's funny you say that because this is the one thing that like I found amazing about the trend, conversations that I've been having around like direct to consumer. Cause I've been spending time with the uh, guys who run electric bikes who are like the, they, they have the world best selling e-bike in the U S and they have a very close relationship with their consumers because they do direct to consumer. But then you go and talk to, people who are, you know, like uh, electric bikes or any of these sort of sort of other large e-bike manufacturers, and they just have largely no idea who their customers are because they, their customers are ultimately the IBDs, the internet, uh, independent bike distributors, who, who then subsequently pass it on. And oftentimes they don't even know who their customers are because they sell the bike and they don't actually take note of who they are and how they're using it and all that sort of stuff. So I can imagine that like the how do you know how your bike's being used is actually incredibly valuable information to, to some groups, I imagine. Yeah, we imagine that too, and we're looking forward to gathering a bunch of that data obviously in a way that respects the privacy of our riders and yep. and seeing what the brands can do with it once they know what's actually um what's actually going on so mm-hmm. that that access to the data and that's why we launched with the ikt also it's beautiful did you <laughs> yeah oh, it's, it's, it's a, yeah, it's it's a, a good looking scooter scooter. as well yeah, yeah. And, and so we launched with them but i think w- we actually expect that over time that kind of connectivity that you have in an ikt which is a premium e-scooter is a 1500 retail e-scooter will make its way into basically every one of these things. So I'm a, a proud owner of electric expedition, 14, $1,400 cargo bike that I take my kids to school on. Yeah. It is an, an amazing value for the dollar. Very, yeah. you know, a lot of good things to say about that, but it is a, you know, it's a, in some ways it's a very sort of basic utilitarian electric bike. I'm not sure that electric will be the first, you know, sort of the next brand in line to adopt this kind of connectivity and yeah. the services around it. Totally. But it's hard to imagine if you look ahead two or three years that you, you would go buy something that valuable that you leave locked, you know, around I mean, the city. I've always and- found it totally mental. I spent nine grand on an electric bike and it has, like, I, I have no idea where it is. I'd have no, if, I, if it gets nicked, it's gone. Like, I mean, even the, the I mean, 1400 bucks is a lot of money for most people. And it's, yeah. even if it's cheap for an electric cargo bike, like I, I put a ton of money into just like security hardware on that just because I didn't want to come back and find, yeah. you know, some piece of it. So it's just, anyway, there, that level that's going to become commonplace. Yes. It's going to become 
table stakes yeah. for most brands to yeah. have some level of services, repairs, theft protection, insurance, and I think also the ability for people to pay for it over time. And that's we want to be the company that that enables that yes. for the starting with the the really the leading brands like Ica, but eventually you know expanding out into into as many of the top electric mobility brands as we can. Okay, so the part that I'm still kind of curious about is like so a lot of people are building e-bikes or e-scooters these days and they don't have the IoT built in. Like what do you, what, what's that pathway between where we are today to, are there, is there standardized stuff? Are we going to, uh, I mean, Horace has this theory, right? That like everybody's going to, there's going to be operating systems that standardize onto these, onto these vehicles. And I'm curious as to whether or not, one, you believe that thesis. And then two, is there, like, can you work with anybody with the IoT? Like what, what's required on the bike or the scooter for you to be able to make this make sense for you? We're going to publish a spec, which is basically if you want to interface a tempo, if you want to increase your sales by 20 plus percent, if you want data about how your vehicles are being used, if you want your customers to have access to after-sales services, you're probably a direct-to-consumer brand that has no local bike shop support right now. We would love to be that for you. If you want to have the theft protection uh, that we can provide, you will need to put, you're going to need to connect your bike and you, and we will provide a spec and that could be, you could call co-module and you could get the hardware from them. You could call any number of other, um, IOT providers who could integrate with our platform. But right now we are working with connected vehicles and, and because it gives us, it helps us manage that risk that you highlighted where we're buying this vehicle and we're renting it to somebody and we want, and the IOT helps us, to, to manage that asset really well. And what we're seeing is it's not just ICA, which is you know, the sister company of a connectivity company, Comodule, but we're seeing it now from other brands. Every month, we're now starting to see another e-mobility brand is offering a connected product. I think, just, I think Apollo just sent an email out about their Voyager, which is coming out next year. That has full IoT. Velotrick, uh, which mm-hmm. is one of the exciting new e-bike brands out of China, just announced a connected product called the Thunder One. So it's it's coming. And I think we think it's pretty inevitable. And we've we've tried to time the launch of this company with this shift in the industry. And I do agree with Horace. I, I don't know if operating system is the right analog, but there will be systems mm-hmm. that are common across a lot of these brands. We talked to the chief product officer of a really big e-bike brand in the US early on in the development of the company. And he said, you know, this is something that everyone's going to need. It's going to be table stakes. Most brands don't have, they're not software companies. Mm-hmm. They're not electronics companies. They're, they're going to look to someone who, they're going to look to share the cost of that IoT. They're going to look to share the cost of the software. They're going to look to share the cost of the local distribution for like the reverse logistics and the mm-hmm. theft recovery. And we want to build that platform that any high quality connected electric mobility brand can plug into. Yes. And it makes sense as well. The one part that I've always wondered a little bit about is like, okay, so you go out and you buy a $5,000 e-bike and then you go and you pay who, like who would you pay for the you know, is it $5 a month? Is it $10 a month for, for like IOT tracking? Is it back to specialized who you bought the bike from or is it to another provider or who, who, like I don't, I've always found that a little bit of a weird thing. Whereas like, it makes way more sense if you're saying like, I'm renting the bike from this, you know, from this company It's just included in the cost of the subscription that I have all these services. And I can totally see that being a way more yeah, just a way more kind of like digestible consumption experience. And I think that's a lot of what's held it back so far is someone who's building, who's putting the bomb together for that bike. They see a $50 module tacked onto their cost structure. Then they, they try to figure out how they're going to convince a rider to pay several dollars a month for that connection. Plus the draw on the battery. I mean, it's, um, and what's changed in recent years is that the new connectivity standards like NB-IoT and mm. CAD-M1 and you know, even LoRa technologies yeah. have lowered the power demand that these connectivity modules have on these relatively small batteries in an e-bike or an e-scooter. That's actually a big part of why Scoot started with mopeds is because we needed a big battery to support the connectivity. Oh, but no way. Yeah. So there's, you know, now th- these things are really efficient and they're really cheap. And the data plans you know, have gone from like 10 bucks like way back in the day down to like a couple bucks a month. And if, But still, it all makes more sense when you're spreading the cost of that module and you're, you're baking the cost of that connection into a subscription service which Mm. because now you're and and i think when you pitch it less as like hey this is an add-on like a premium upgrade but this is a thing that's going to open you know 20 plus percent sales Mm. you know on top of your usual so then it's a different conversation and i think that's a conversation that i think a lot of brands haven't had yet but it's one that we're looking to start with them yes totally i'm curious the kind of 
like, for example, I've had that conversation with Zach about, you know, he, he did Unagi and Unagi is, it's hard. Like it's hardware is hard to support. It's easier to go and support a coffee machine that goes into a house and then never gets moved versus an e-bike, which is like, hey, it's always on the move. There's obviously risk about theft and then there's risk of damage and things like that. So can you talk through that part of it? So say, for example, a scooter manufacturer comes to you and says, yeah, cool. I want you to support me in the US or in wherever how are you handling that side of the maintenance the returns do you maintain your own warehousing is that how that's going to work the model that and this is where we comes back to the scalability thing Mm. i think we we know that if you do subscription right the unit economics work we know the demand is there the the question is how do you scale it and and this is i think one thing that i took away from bird that was valuable is that there are people all over the world that want to do the kind of work that needs to be done around electric mobility devices. Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, initially with Bird and Lime, that was chargers, but yeah. the model uh, has evolved for most of those companies into you know, relationships with local businesses and independent contractors who kind of own their own fleets. And mm-hmm. that model is not, a, it's not exactly the model we're following, but we're interested in tapping into that community of folks that support sharing fleets mm-hmm. and you know, could add this as, as another kind of line of business. We're interested in tapping into local bike shops that are willing to work on electric products. Not all of them are yet, but mm-hmm. I think they're starting to come around. Um, we're interested in tapping into mobile technicians and other kinds of businesses that are, are used to serving use cases like this. We don't need, especially for something like a stand-on scooter, but in many cases, a bicycle, we don't need to stand up whole sort of scoot style maintenance facilities the way we did before, at least to get started. So we've, we've reached out across the country to folks that are in these kind of related businesses and said, Hey, if we, if we started sending you some subscription vehicles from these brands that we're working with, would you be willing to, you know, if we paid you this much to set it up and this much to deliver it and this much when it needs to be repaired and this much when it gets returned to you and needs to be refurbished for the next rider, would you be down? And they're like, yeah, when, when can we start? When do I get my vehicles? So we're, we're, we think that there's a, there is actually an opportunity to do this in a scalable way, but from any one brand, very few brands are going to be able to provide that kind of volume on their own to make it interesting for a local service provider. But if you have a company like Tempo that can bundle a bunch of these brands and bring all that business Mm. together to a local bike shop or local fleet manager, then that's a really interesting opportunity for them. And I assume that you would, I mean, as you said, IKEA is starting, but you want it only in San Francisco. So you're going to start with geographically, like localized geographic markets in the first instance. Yeah, we're we're starting in SF, which is where I'm based. And we, you know, we feel like we have a really good grip on how to operate here. But um, we will do California mm-hmm. broadly, you know, over the course of the rest of the year, and then I think we're probably going to go nationwide in 2024. You know, you say that as mm-hmm. an entrepreneur at the right the beginning, you never know what's actually going to come up. But our expectation is that once the model works here, of uh, you know, when we when we find a way that we can work with third parties on the um, on the fulfillment side, we can we can work with brands effectively, uh, then we should be able to operate basically anywhere in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And at the moment, like. I find it interesting that you're not going to build like a brand as Tempo because I mean like a firm and Klarna, they, they, they did their own advertising. I mean, there's, there's an element of that. Like, can you talk me through your decision to not try and do an a firm or a Klarna style business? Yeah. There's two pieces of it. The first is that we, th- we don't think very many people wake up in the morning and think I want a bike subscription. I yeah. think they wake, they, they see some beautiful e-bike or they their friends has one or something like that. And they're like, I want that. Mm. And then they go to the website of the company that makes it because it's pro- these days it's probably a direct to consumer brand or maybe they go down to the local bike shop and then they and they see this thing and then they decide whether or not they're going to buy it or not and that I think is where Klarna is a little different they have a little bit more of a storefront but a firm I think almost all their business just comes through people finding them in the checkout flow of, mm. of various mm. brands and and we we think that's actually kind of the natural way that you come to one of these vehicles. So rather than go out and say like, who wants a subscription, come to us, then we'll mm. help you find the right subscription. Yeah. You're going to go looking for an IKT because it's gorgeous. Yeah. You're going to see it and you're going to want it. And then you might decide like, well, it's kind of expensive or like, I, I want to try it first or something. And then you'll do a subscription with us. Mm. And that, that also saves us the priest these days staggering expense of building a consumer brand so yeah. as a startup it gives us like that those customers are showing up already like there's mm. no it's i mean it's kind of like you used to work at uber 
these cars are on the cars were out there already. Mm. Like why, why should Uber go buy their own cars? It's like, mm. well, we don't need to create new customers for e-bikes and e-scooters. They're already showing up at the websites and some of them are buying, but a lot of them aren't. So let's yeah. just tap into that pool of folks that are there already. Yeah. I'm really, I'm, I've just come back from Phoenix guys. I'm, I've been schooled by the electric boys about the price sensitivity of, of consumers like that. The, you know, super low end is, when you've got a $1,400 cargo bike, it really is just a very compelling thing if you can go and get that. And and getting those people over the hump on being able to purchase something when they maybe would not have before is really important. And so anything that like drives down the cost of getting someone over that hump uh, into a you know weekly or a monthly subscription. Are you offering weekly, monthly? How's that going to work? We're doing monthly and an annual commitment where we bill you monthly, but you you commit to a year and we'll give you a deep discount if you'll commit to a right. year. Yeah, okay. That makes a lot of sense. And how, I mean, obviously you're starting with like a, have you got any others that you're in the pipeline that you, I know you probably can't announce them, but like any hints uh, of things that we can talk I'll about? I'll say the next product's going to be an e-bike for sure. Okay. Uh, and I can't say which one, but as I said, you know, every month we're finding out about really nice e-bikes that are coming out with connectivity. And that's what we're looking for is a really nice e-bike that's connected and where there's a brand behind it that is, that is looking to grow and, mm. you know, wants our help with that. Cool. Well, I feel like we've kind of been through the nitty gritty of uh, the details, but I want to kind of go back up to the 10,000 foot view. And I mean, I know that your mission around why you're in the micro mobility industry, and I certainly believe that for myself as someone who's in micro and Horace, I know who's been in micro is just like, we want to see this happen. And I think I can see the accelerative nature of something like this, where you can go, okay, we can reduce that down. Can you talk me through like, if Horace was asking these questions, what is, what's Horace going to think is interesting in your view? Oh man, that's the best. <laughs> I'm a big Horace fan. And I, I always love the way when he gets on this podcast that he just takes it to like a hundred thousand feet and, mm. and you know, puts it in a huge context. And I find that very inspiring personally. And where, where his, some of his ideas have inspired me specifically vis-a-vis tempo was the way that he looks at the whole global market for transportation, mm-hmm. like the market for miles, I think mm-hmm. he, he calls it. And one of the things that he pointed out in some one of his past talks that I just hadn't quite tuned into is that you know, there's 8 billion people in the world right mm-hmm. now. There's 1.2 billion cars. So it's, it's a lot of cars, mm-hmm. but there's, you know, of the 8 billion people, so like five, 6 billion of them are adults who could conceivably drive a car. And you throw a few hundred million e-bikes in there, you know, half a billion-ish, give or take, motorcycles of, mm-hmm. of various description, a few SUVs and trucks. And what you end up with is is like a couple billion personal motorized vehicles mm-hmm. for a global adult population of five or six billion people. Mm-hmm. And he's like, so wait, what are the what are the other three or four billion people doing every day? Mm-hmm. And if you you know, you go outside and we're not just talking about like folks in New York or Paris or something like that who don't want to own a car and have a really nice subway system. It's just, it's mostly folks outside of the U S and outside of Europe. Mm. And, and they, the options they have available to them, sometimes they're pretty good and sometimes they're pretty terrible. Mm. And, and the main reason most of those several billion people don't yet have a car or a motorcycle or an e-bike is because they can't afford one. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not an elective thing. Mm. It's not like a lifestyle decision. Mm-hmm. So the f- traditionally, like for the last couple of decades, the first vehicle that someone can buy is the first vehicle. The first vehicle someone buys is the first vehicle someone can afford. Mm-hmm. And in most parts of the world, that's a second or third hand two stroke motorbike. Yeah. And because it costs like, call it like five or 600 bucks. And then you're putting, you know, a thousand dollars of like fuel and maintenance into it over the rest of its useful life. Mm-hmm. Obviously a two stroke motorbike, quite polluting mm-hmm. and, um, you know, it's loud and, and, and and it's expensive for someone mm. to to pay for all that. There aren't really a le- there there isn't quite yet on the market the perfect sort of like two stroke motorbike killer on the electric side. If you go toe to toe on like range and mm. power, mm-hmm. but the thing is, and Horace would say this because we sort of are trained the same way. When you're competing against non consumption, yeah. we're talking about billions of people that yeah. are you're, that aren't they would have bought a two stroke motorbike already if they could. They can't. You know, a decent electric bike you know, runs like less than a grand in mm-hmm. some cases. And like, that's something that could hold up pretty well. And, you know, obviously you have to have access to electricity. The roads mm-hmm. can't be a complete disaster, mm-hmm. but you, you can be better off with that than you would be with nothing. Yeah. And if that bike can be made to last a few years, you know, battery, you know, 
would, would last that long and with a little bit of maintenance, you're talking about like a dollar a day for personal transportation. Like that yeah. is, that's like a real thing right now. You yeah. can go buy like a decent quality e-bike for like a thousand dollars. It'll last a few years. That's a dollar a day. Yeah. And a dollar a day is a price that a lot of people can afford. Yeah. But that's the distribution. Especially when you get that level of like, it, it so materially changes your mobility profile when you go from like, oh, I, I was, yeah, I, I'm either on the public transport with like limited options in terms of my ability to get around or I'm riding a kind of a, like an older, older bike that is, you know, hard to maintain, doesn't do the same level of performance and all that sort of stuff. I totally get it. I am waiting for, 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 for examples of that. I, the financing side, I mean, I don't want to go back into the nitty gritty, so we won't go there. But I, but I, the, 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 there is a, the, the, the kind of how do we make it accessible? Because it's like, okay, we're launching in San Francisco. We're launching with like a high-end scooter. How do we get it so that it's like we're in Kenya, we're financing millions of e-bikes a year? Yeah. So you said that I'm often too early to these things. And then, and I will, <laughs> I will confess that a very, an early, if you saw early pitch decks for this business, it makes reference to some wonderful businesses that have been operating in, you know, much less wealthy parts of the world for a long time. A lot of those businesses are called pay-go businesses. Yep. Uh, they, they, some of their earliest products were solar home kits mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. f- were, you know, transformational for folks that you know, were getting, you know, light and, and other electricity into their house for the first time. And, but, but needed to be financed in a way, you know, in these markets where there's not traditional credit and people don't have a lot of savings. And so the way that they were financed is that the, someone could take one of these things home and make weekly payments on it. But if they didn't make the weekly payments, it wouldn't work that week. And that was, it sounds brutal, but it was a way for folks to get like something really basic and useful that they couldn't have otherwise, you know, afforded because of the, their personal financial situation, the financial sort of condition in which, you know, of where they lived. That technology is starting to come to motorbikes now. And there's mm-hmm. some companies in different parts of the world that are using that sort of IoT pay go, you know, sort of they're using IoT as a financing technology. And that's yep. actually kind of what Scoot and Bird and Lime were doing is we were yep. doing these like 15 minute IoT secured totally. vehicle loans. Just ends up being that they cost $10 for a 15 minute ride. Yeah, you know, exactly. So it's a, that I think there's going to be, and I would love for Tempo to play a big part in this we're starting in San Francisco because we're, we're trying to be um, you know, realistic and mm-hmm. prove the model out in a context that you know, we're familiar with and, and we control, but there is a great opportunity, whether it's us or it's someone else who does it to use the kinds of technologies that we've been using to mm-hmm. control millions and millions of shared vehicles for mm-hmm. years and years and years and use it as a means to get a really valuable, useful form of transportation into the hands of someone who might not otherwise have been able to access it, but for the fact that it has this sort of financing or lease or subscription that's facilitated by the connectivity. And that can be, you know, that, that, that can mean, you know, theft protection, it can mean repairs. It can mean like, you know, effectively a financial product. And that, that technology is something that, you know, we're building here, we're building it for, obviously for sort of a premium San Francisco market initially, if we have the opportunity to take that globally, we would be very, very proud of that. And if, mm-hmm. and if it's someone else who does it, you know, gets there first, then awesome. Because like, I think yeah. that's for climate change reasons, for mm-hmm. you know, social equity reasons, mm-hmm. for humanitarian reasons, it's, it's got to happen. Yeah. Like if all those people buy two-stroke motorbikes or cars, God forbid, forget it. Yeah. Climate, climate change, done deal. Yeah. There's totally. nothing we can do about it. Totally. Sold. Sold. Uh, this is... Man, it's good to spend time with you. <laughs> um, and I, yeah, I, look, hats off for, for um, wanting to go down this route. I know it's been, it's not not been a straight road for you on, on this one as well. So it's really, really, really exciting. I mean, I wanted, I've wanted to see some more subscription businesses and I think building the platform that allows for more of those subscription businesses is a smart play. So, um, you know, hats off to you. So thank you. I'm sure we will have you back on the podcast in the years to come uh, to have more conversations about this and where you've got to and all that sort of stuff. But um, in the meantime, if people do want to find out a bit more about you, how would they do that? Uh, I'm Michael at ridetempo.co. So it's so the website for the new company, ridetempo, R-I-D-E-T-E-M-P-O.co. Um, I'm Michael at ridetempo.co. I'm at M. B is in boy Keating on Twitter uh, and happy to hear from anybody in the community. Um, love the micromobility community and, and everything that we're trying to accomplish. So it's a huge thrill to be on the podcast and looking forward to seeing folks in Amsterdam and, and on to the next thing. Awesome. Wonderful. All right. Well, take care. We'll talk soon.